This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I am your host. And joining me today is Will Bushman, our Student Ministries Director. Wow, thank you. <laughs> who has invested in a Roadcaster Pro mixing board, and he has watched lots of YouTube videos and uh, has lots of gadgets and tricks and all kinds of stuff. We, we, we actually prank phoned called Drew Cherry before recording this and let her know that we were recording her. Yeah, so, this podcast is about to get good. <laughs> or really annoying yeah. and, and distracted. Just give us a couple weeks to <laughs> find the happy medium. Happy medium. So as you can hear, I am, I'm in the middle of a cold. Like my, my son had a cold last week. And when he gets a cold, he gets my five-year-old, he gets very snuggly and he's like a thermal blanket. And then I got it, which I always get sick on weeks, weekends where I preach. And so like every time I preach, I'm giving Will a phone call or a text message saying, I may not have a voice on Sunday. You're on deck. Be prepared to preach so that he can't enjoy his weekend. Yeah. It's only actually happened once. It was good Friday (laughs) last year. Oh, was it really? Yeah. But it feels, oh yeah, where it's actually happened to where you've stepped yeah, where in and I've had, had to, to do, do it. it. Yeah. But it's been, how many times have I given you that warning? I'm on the edge. Now I ask Laura even before, like, how's he feeling? <laughs> like, where it's, are we at? If you want to know, like, if I want to know when I'm getting sick, I just look at the preaching calendar. Cause it's like that, with that Friday, I start going downhill. It's astounding. Honestly, your it body's really like, nope, it, it's, it's, it's really bizarre. Um, But we are continuing our series on the life of Abraham, and we get to today, chapter 22, which is probably the most famous chapter involving Abraham. It's where God is coming to him and asking him to sacrifice his son. So everybody's heard of this, and it's it's a chapter that will make you have a strong reaction in some direction. God coming to somebody and asking to sacrifice his children is something that's objectionable right out of the gates. We don't like it. We're uncomfortable with it, but there is a uh, purpose to it. There's, there's something really beautiful behind it, which we'll get into. So if, you, if you're looking at this story, there's something that's been going on in the scriptures leading up to this. And we've talked about it before, how, how Genesis, and it'll continue doing this through the rest of Genesis. In fact, it does this pretty much through the rest of scripture, where you meet these new characters, they're they're kind of lifted up to you like, oh, this is going to be the hero. This is going to be the one who who brings redemption to humanity. And every time there's a fail, you know, Adam fails, Noah fails, Abraham fails, all of his descendants are going to fail. The kings all fail. The prophets, you know, don't bring about ultimate redemption. And the Old Testament is kind of written in a manner that makes you think, gosh, we need something better. It whets your appetite for Jesus. But in the process of all these you know, triumphs at one moment and failures in the next, God is sharpening his people. So as they're going through the highs and lows, God is conforming their character. And you see that in the life of Abraham. And there's a, a great Jewish scholar from, from antiquity whose name is Maimonides, which is a fun name to say. So you should try it. I had to Google that when he sent it to me. Uh, Maimonides? Like, hey, should I know this person? <laughs> like, <it's- laughs> He's very, he's got... So he is a very famous Jewish scholar from antiquity that they quote with lots of regularity. Okay. You know, he's, he's come up with a lot of really brilliant insights. Some of them are stretches, uh, but one of his famous ones is with the life of Abraham, where he says, Abraham went through 10 major tests. So, so 10 tests of his character. The first one is when God comes to him. And it, this is kind of good because it gives us a summary of where Abraham's been. But God comes to him and says, hey, leave your homeland Leave your pagan gods. Remember, he's coming from a land where he worshiped the the god Nana, which was a god of fertility that, you know, Abraham's 75. He hasn't had any kids. God shows up to him and says, hey, you leave your land and your gods and your father's household. Trust me and I'll give you kids. I'll show myself to be a better god. And so that's the first test. And Abraham does amazing. 
he does great. He leaves and he, he obeys God. Then right after this, he gets to the promised land and he encounters a famine. <laughs> so he fails at that one. This is that's that was pretty <laughs> You gotta be better Sorry. on the cue, man. So he fails at that one and goes down to Egypt and is looking for provision from Pharaoh and you know, some bad things happen. Then after that, the Egyptians seize his wife, and he's no good there. He's like, hey, pretend that you're my sister, so he fails there. Then Abraham comes out, and he faces incredible odds, and he's going to go to battle against the major empires, if you remember. Like, what incredible courage with only 318 people to go rescue Lot and the people of Sodom, and and that's an amazing thing he does. And then he takes Hagar after not being able to to have children with Sarah. And so that's a downer. Then God tells him to circumcise himself and his household at an advanced age, and he's faithful there. And it's like you just see him bouncing back and forth. Then the king of Gerar, Abimelech, takes Sarah, and Abraham's like, fine, yeah, just tell him you're my sister. And so he fails there. Then God tells him to send Hagar away, and he obeys there. And he gets estranged from his son Ishmael and You know, all of that shows a hardship, but he's faithful. He obeys there, which in a weird way is a good trait for Abraham. And he actually starts rising up to defend Hagar and saying, no, 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 I want Ishmael, but he's willing to obey God and trust God's plan for them. And then you get to the 10th of those, and that is starting in Genesis chapter 22, where we're jumping in today in verse 1. It says, after these things, so you're putting together the biography of Abraham and all that he's been through, after these things, why does it tell us that? Well, God in every single one of those stories is showing Abraham that you can trust God to protect the promise. Remember, God comes to Abraham and says, through you, all the nations on earth are going to be blessed. Through your seed, Isaac, the nations of the world are going to be blessed, which means God has to protect that line. And so Abraham goes to war against an empire. God protects the life. He's, he's given a promise that your barren and postmenopausal wife is going to have a child. God stays true to the promise. Like in all of these situations where it seems like the promise is in jeopardy, God overcomes death, barrenness, all the dangers to bring forth the promised one. And so through this, Abraham has been learning, you can trust God with life and death. That's what he's been learning through his whole life. So verse one, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Whoa. Yeah, tough pull. This is crazy. Like, this is crazy. He has spent 25 years waiting for Isaac, the promised child, to come. Isaac's born. And now to this point, we know that Isaac has is, is now reaching the age of being old enough to carry the wood for the sacrifice. So it's he's not a toddler, he's not a baby, he's not he's not even young. He's he's relatively grown. So like when I imagine this, I'm thinking you know, 12, 13 years old, he's able to walk and carry up a mountain with wood and he's speaking and he knows customs and things. We'll see that. Um, but God all of a sudden has gone from saying, Hey, this is the promised child who's through him is going to come the salvation of the world. Abraham, I want you to take him and kill him, which means I want you to snuff out the hope of the world. And Abraham is confronted with this, like a radical (laughs) contradiction in his mind. Hold on a minute. God's promise says that he's going to bless the world and that he's going to bring about the redemption of the world through Isaac. God's command says that I'm supposed to do something that makes no sense in light of that promise. So which do I, where do I put my feet? Where, Where do I obey? Do I trust the promise of God more than I trust how this makes sense in my own mind. And for Abraham's entire life, he's he's more or less gone with what makes sense in my own mind. 
Like, of course, God can't bring a child to, to Sarah. So I need to sleep with Hagar. Mm. Um, of course, I'll get killed if I tell them that she's my wife. So I'm going to tell them that she's my sister. He's always looking at the circumstance and trying to fix God's promise, right? And so this is like the first to major, major time or one of them where he looks at the circumstance. God, you just, you just told me to kill my son. And then he looks over here at the promise, but you've also promised that you're going to bless the world through my son. So what do I do? I'm going to trust that you're the God who brings life out of death that, that can make sense of this. And he obeys. And, you know, you ask most people if they would obey this command and the overwhelming majority say no chance. Yeah. And it's tough because he has no backup plan anymore. He's kicked Ishmael out, right? If there's another son of promise coming from Sarah, that seems yeah highly unlikely again. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like, now she's over a hundred. He's a hundred and whatever, 12, 13. Yeah. So it seems like, man, tough spot to trust, but it's kind of the only option in this sense. Yeah. So the, the salvation comes through the Lord. It's in his hand and he's the one who's, who's asking for obedience in this extreme circumstance. And the way that he phrases this, when he gives this command, it's like he pauses and he wants Abraham to understand just how costly it is. Yeah. It's not like, hey, you know, go sacrifice your son. He's, it's like he's parsing it out. He's like, hey, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Remember, you, you don't have another son mm. anymore. He's gone. Ishmael's gone. Yeah. So take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It's like he's reminding him of the name, the promise, the laughter, everything, all the triumph that's come out of this. The son you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as not just any sacrifice, but a burnt offering, which means you don't even have a corpse left. Like you're offering him up. He's going to be ashes, gone. Ouch. Like this is asking a really, really big thing. And one of the interesting things he adds here. Take him to one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's like every time that God tells Abraham to go somewhere, it's, he doesn't give him a pinpoint. No. Yeah. It's like, I'll show you when you get there. Yeah, just keep going. Just just go somewhere. I'll, I'll, I'll show you when, you when you're on your way. And so the crazy part of this passage, or crazier it seems, is that Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. So, you, you know, it's like it, it doesn't say he awoke. He rose early in the morning. He's, I can't imagine he slept too well no. that night. But first thing in the morning, it's like he's obeying. And he has no, he doesn't give God any lip. You know, there's no yeah, response. He just what? takes it. Yeah. Every time. Which is time, unusual for him. Completely. Yeah. Remember when, when God comes in Genesis 15 and he's like, hey, I'm going to provide all these things. And Abraham's like, how can I know? Or when he comes and says, hey, you're going to have Isaac. And he's like, oh, why not Ishmael? Like, you're right. And he Sodom, did, he's not like haggling. Totally. He's not like, well, maybe not <laughs> Isaac. What about, you know, Abraham these days? He'd be like, why not Sarah? Yeah. Yeah, you're to totally right. He, he haggles there. He haggles with Sodom. Well, what if, what, if, what if you find 30 righteous guys? Like, there's none of that. He's he's reached the point now where he has learned that obedience to the Lord is the safest thing he can do. I think that takes all of us 115 <laughs> years. Yeah, um, is that our, is that our track? I'll tell you, I'm at 44 and I'm not there yet. Yeah. You know, I still I still like to haggle and I, I got all my doubts. Um, and you're younger than me, so you're yeah. more wicked than I am. Yeah, just <laughs> still filled with pride. So um, anyway, it says, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place that God had told him. Now, Mount Moriah, we know, is in in the in Jerusalem basically like when it talks about Solomon building the temple it says that he built the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah so the very the very mountain that is where David will will ultimately conquer and and build begin you know making that the center of the kingdom and Solomon will build his palace and the temple there we're talking about Jerusalem so God's like I want you to take your son and and go to that mountain um where ultimately the Jebusites will live, and that's where you're going to sacrifice him. On the third day, like, I mean, come on. They're just laying this up for us. It really the is. description like, of Isaac, third day, Mount Moriah. Yeah, so take your son, your only son, go to the region of Jerusalem on a mountain, and on the third day after I give this thing, this proclamation that your son's going to die, 
Abraham, it says, he lifts up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship, literally bow down is what it says, and come again to you. And when <coughs> you weren't fast enough with Sorry. the cough button. <laughs> Missed it. Anyway, um, when he says, the boy and I are going to go over there and we're going to worship, we're going to bow down, and we're going to come again to you. When I first read that story, I thought, I always read it as Abraham is telling the story in a way that doesn't spook Isaac to run away. He's, he's just mm. straight up lying. Yeah. But when you get to the New Testament and you read Hebrews, the book of Hebrews actually tells you that in chapter 11 that Abraham, when he's given this command, is expecting God to raise Isaac from the dead. So he's expecting resurrection, and he's expecting resurrection on the third day, interestingly, right? And so that's what makes sense of this story. He's, he's saying, I know God is good enough that he will not go back on his promise to me. So if he allows me to kill my son, and by the way, it's not just like you're, you're going to sacrifice your son. It says burnt offering. He's going to burn him into ash. Mm. Like, I still believe that God is going to take the ash and just like he made Adam from the dust, he'll, he'll take the ashes. He'll take the dust and remake my son Isaac and give him back to me. Like, can you imagine having that kind of faith? And by the way, I, I just want to be on the record as saying the purpose for this miracle, the purpose for this was entirely to point our minds and our understanding to the gospel and to Jesus. If you hear God telling you to sacrifice your son, like, no, like check yourself in. God's not going to be doing this again. There's been one son that's been sacrificed for all time. That story is over. There's no reasoning behind this. God's not going to call you to do this anymore. There actually was a, a crazy guy like a decade ago who did end up doing this, and he was totally out of his mind and said that he wanted to do this because he believed that God would raise his son and bring his brother mm -hmm. to faith, and he was like completely out of his mind, clinically, okay. certifiably crazy. If you're hearing that voice, don't act on it, <laughs> right? That's a good warning. Yeah. I never thought about that, but this is that was good. <laughs> so, so, but think about the kind of faith that it would take there. Like it looks you, delusional. Because he comes totally. off as crazy delusional, and then you think about faith in this instance would have to look delusional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he knows it's delusional. He yeah. says to the servants, yeah, we're going to go uh, worship over there. We'll be back in a minute. Because if he'd have said, hey, I believe that God is going to, he, he has me you know, slaughtering my son and burning him, and then he's going to raise him from the dead, and we're going to turn, we're going to come back to you. Those servants would have freaked out, right? Yeah. Abraham doesn't inform them. And by the way, you know, I say those servants would have freaked out. Probably not as I stop and think about it, because this is the norm yeah. all through that region, all through that region. Uh, the gods were into child sacrifice. Like we don't, we don't understand <laughs> how much different the world is because of the spread of Christian ethics. And he's playing apart here abraham i guess how you read the tone of everything abraham says really but he's not giving isaac vibes like i need to fight my dad and live yeah you know like at this stage i think 13 year old isaac maybe older could take old abraham out yeah i, mean, I think it's clear he's beyond 100 i'm guessing he can outrun him yeah so abraham's <laughs> giving off a vibe like we're all okay everything's gonna be okay so it, it is an interesting thing to think of, like where's he at and all this yeah well, you're and and a little bit. He's going to be asking questions of his dad, like, yeah. uh, where, "Where's I'm the tracking. sacrifice?" <laughs> you know. But just to, just to pause for a moment, so we understand the culture in which ancient Israel existed. In this land, you had the the Canaanites and you had the Moabites, who we've talked about. You you had different cultures that come later, like the Ammonites and the Moabites. But but the Canaanites that lived there were known for child sacrifice. Like if you if you jump in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 19, you have him describing how at the high places of Baal, which was one of the pagan gods, that they would burn their sons in the fire as whole burnt offerings to Baal. 
which is, you know, Jeremiah makes it a point like God says, that's something I had not spoken of or commanded, and it never came into my heart. Um, if you go back to Deuteronomy, which is, you know, 700, well, more than that, 800, 900 years before Jeremiah, this is the writing of Moses when, when Moses is saying, hey, you're about to go into a land that is out of control. And he says, they, they do for their gods every detestable thing that Yahweh hates, even burning their sons and their daughters in the fires to their gods. And we know from archaeology where in the Valley of Hinnom, which is just outside of Jerusalem, they would burn their sons in this valley. Like it, it talks about that in Second Kings. It says, he also made unfit worship for Topheth, which is in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. It's called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom because that's where they were slaughtered, the sons were, so that no one could make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Moloch, which was one of the pagan gods that they would sacrifice kids to. So all over the place, the norm was a God coming to you saying, I want you to show how much you love me by sacrificing your kids to me. And in archaeology, I was about to say, they have found remnants all through this region, even going into Carthage and, and northern Africa, where these gods were worshipped, and they find them in the same type of offering jars that they would put the remains of animal sacrifices. Mm. And the remains are all one to two month old. Yeah. Um, babies that would be you know put in these fires to satisfy the lusts of these gods and so when you hear and this is where you have to kind of change your mindset because without context you hear god say hey i want you to sacrifice your son to me yeah sounds you, bad you go what kind of this is a horrible religious book what god is doing and he does this you'll see this all through the scriptures is he is contrasting himself with the pagan gods. And so when he comes to Abraham and says, I want you to give your your kid to me, Abraham's going, uh, you got to imagine Abraham's like, oh man, like I thought you were going to be different. Yeah. I thought you were going to be different. And he's, a, but, but this is the norm, okay? This is how all the gods are. And the whole point of this story is that he is a different kind of God who will not allow his people to sacrifice children. He, he sets himself apart as we're going to see as the story unfolds further. Anything? No, I forgot how gross it is. All right, so verse six, it says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his on Isaac, his son. So there you go. He's, he's old enough to carry a funeral pyre, and it's not like a couple of sticks. These are big logs that they would form almost as, as a as a pyramid looking thing where the sun would go on top of it and then you would burn them after mm -hmm. you you've killed them so this is a lot of wood the fact that he's strong enough to carry it says you know he's he's old enough to take papa abraham yeah if you're gonna have to burn your kid you don't want to be like a matchstick and you're like waiting yeah no this is for it. <laughs> right this, like you want this to happen fast it's gonna be a raging fire this is a lot of wood um and so this is where isaac is getting wise to this he says my father and abraham said here i am my son and Isaac said, well, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? It's a good question. Good question. <laughs> and Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went on, both of them, together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, this is where it's remarkable because what do you not find? Isaac fighting back? Yeah. They had to. Do you think they had to have a conversation at this I'm point? I'm guessing. I'm guessing by this point they have to have a con conversation because there's two things that are missing here that you would think one of them has to be there. <laughs> you know, either you have Isaac fighting or you have a conversation in which Abraham is explaining to him what he's doing yeah. and trying to, you don't find either. It's just all of a sudden Isaac is bound and he's laid on the altar on top of the wood. And it leaves it to your imagination to wonder, is Isaac struggling or is he going willingly? and obediently, which also draws into mind, you know, down the road, somebody else who would go willingly. And it says, so he laid him on the altar on top of the wood, 
Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So he's intent. He's, he's going through with it. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Now remember the angel of the Lord had appeared to, to Hagar before to assure her that he saw her and cared for her. And then he appeared to her again and saved her son at the, why, why did I just go mute? Why are you muting me? I didn't. You did mute me. I clicked the screen button. It didn't have anything to do with that. You're yeah, still totally. Going. I lost my sound. Yeah, it was just, you just can't hear yourself. Yeah, this is no, you, you, you settle down over there. With Sorry. You. <laughs> I was testing you. Well, all right. What? Angel oh, so the, Hagar. So the, yeah, the second time the angel of the Lord came to Hagar, it was when Ishmael was about to die. And the angel of the Lord shows up and says he's not going to die, points out that there's a well over there and rescues. And so now the angel of the Lord appears out of heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. Um, one of the cool things about Eastern literature, Hebrew literature, is every time you find someone's name repeated, it's a meaning of two things. There's an urgency to it, but an affection that's mingled with it. So you'll find it, you know, Abraham, Abraham. All right, so there, there's a number of times where God repeats names. Give, give me some of them. Exodus 3, Moses, Moses. Mm-hmm. Then we have Jacob, Jacob in Genesis 46. Then we have Samuel, Samuel in 1 Samuel 3. Then we have Martha, Martha in Luke 10. Then we have Simon Simon in Luke 22. So Peter, so this is a pretty elite club. And at every point, it's where God is coming in. He's intervening to, to point them to something better or to announce their deliverance or to do something like that. Um, and you'll find the same thing coming out of Jesus's mouth when he's weeping over Jerusalem, right? And he's saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you to myself like a hen gathers chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Like you hear the, there's, there's urgency there. Like, man, I wish you would come. And then there's also the affection. Like I'm heartbroken that you won't. Mm. You hear that out of Jesus and, and probably the most heartbreaking time you ever hear the repetition comes when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God. So it's like the urgency of it, like I need you desperately right now mm. with affection. Why have you forsaken me? It, it, it adds to it. And so in this case, you have God who comes, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Notice how many times he says that. Like, I'm here. Casual. What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you need? Like, I mean, basically like I'm at your service. Yeah. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will, notice that, will provide as it is said to this day, on the Mount of the Lord, Mount Moriah, Jerusalem, it shall be provided. So this story is taking place 2,000 years almost before Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem. And this story is so brilliantly told that when you hear it, your initial reaction, the initial reaction of everybody who hears this story is, what kind of God would ask humanity to do such a thing? Mm. And it's it's like it's a judo move <laughs> because reverse uno. It's it reverse uno. There you go. So what what's going to happen is it's going to be God who then has to ask you that question. Because if you let's consider just the story in its as you would tell it in all of the details. You ready? So God comes and says, Abraham, your son is the hope of the world. Salvation of the world is going to come through your son. Can you think of anyone else who could say that about their son? Joseph. What? <laughs> Get it? Oh, yeah. The okay, earthly father of Jesus. Got it, got it, got it. Oh, got him. The earthly father. I'm, th I'm waiting for God. God You're I confusing know. me. And when you said Joseph, I'm thinking Abraham's great-grandson. So I'm like, no, he's not even in the line. What are you talking about? All right. Anyway, you got you did get me. Thank you. Jesus is the son that's going to bring. And he says, your son is going to be sacrificed. 
It's your only son, your only beloved son. I mean, this is sounding like John 3.16, right? You have to go to Mount Moriah, which is in Jerusalem. You're going to go into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. You're going to have to take the implement of execution, the wood, and you're going to put it on the back of the son of salvation. He's going to climb the mountain carrying the wood, and then when he gets there, notice the language, God vows to provide a lamb. Well, where do you where do you see God providing a lamb? I mean, when you think John the Baptist, right? Boom. Jesus shows up to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist declares, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and all through Revelation, through prophetic literature, Jesus, the Messiah, is referred to as that lamb. He is the one to whom it's going to be provided. And then down into even the nitty-gritty, that as, as Abraham hears the angel go, no, 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 stop. You don't, I don't want you to do that. God then ordains that when Abraham looks up, he sees a ram and its head is caught in a thicket, which which makes you think, okay, what does that look like? Its head is, what's a thicket? What's unique? Is a ram an adult lamb? Rams are male sheep, adults. Okay, cool. That's just a fun fact I did not know. Yeah, so so a ram is an adult male sheep. Here you, here you have a ram that is caught with its head in a thicket. And when you think thicket, what 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 comes to mind? Crown, crown of thorns. It's thorns, right? And the head is caught in it. So this sacrifice that's going to stand in the place of Isaac in this moment it's wild. is a an adult ram with its head crowned with thorns. Like all these details, God is, it's all prophetic. So it's, it's crown of thorns. And even on the fact that they go up there on the third day after God has declared a death sentence on Isaac, and Abraham is like, we are going to return, the both of us. He's anticipating a third day resurrection. And so remember when I said that we all say, oh, what kind of God would require humanity to give his son the details of this story that are so evidently pointing your mind to Jesus then beg the question, what kind of humanity would require God to give his son? Mm. But that's our only hope of salvation. And so we come to God and we want to throw a moral accusation at him and say, you know, how could you do this? But the response is that the truth behind the story of Isaac, the greater reality behind the story of Isaac is you have a God who so loves humanity, so loves you, that he would give his son. And it's not like the son is going, no, no, no. They're of one mind. It's the Trinity. It's the son who is all in on the mission. The son loves you enough to lay down his life. They're in this together. But that's the kind of love they have for you. And the reason why it's made necessary is because you would die eternally apart from this. Mm. Someone had to die to take your sin. Someone had to give you a covering of righteousness that you couldn't possibly earn on your own so that you could be with him forever. And again, remember this whole thing is showing you that Abraham serves a God who brings life out of death. Well, here he prevents the execution. Jesus will not have that execution stayed. There's there's no angel of the Lord that as Jesus is going to the cross says, no, 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 you know, put down the knife. No, he goes to the cross, and yet what Abraham knew God could do for his son Isaac, God will do for his son Jesus. He will conquer the grave, and in doing so, because he's God, he will conquer the grave for all of us. He will defeat the power of death. This, again, Genesis taking a wild story, and once we understand context, and even, I mean, this one is so perfect because of the wording. Mm-hmm. Like, unless, and it's, this is another argument for the Bible being what it is, just the beautiful <laughs> nature of it, that, I mean, unless a coincidence here would be crazy. The, but the fact that this the is details, obviously yeah. point, yeah, like, beloved son, like, every single one matches up, and you're like, oh, that makes sense. God's not just a cosmic child abuser. Yeah, because that's the accusation. Yeah. That's the accusation you hear from, you know, the evangelical atheists, you know, evangelistic, I should say, atheists that write the books. It's, you know, God is a tyrant, a cosmic child abuser. 
Are, no, 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 no. God, Jesus is God. We tend to forget that. It's not like he's some you know unwilling victim who's like, no, no, daddy. That's no, absolutely not. You have Jesus who talks about how he lays down his life and takes it up again. He goes into this knowingly and willingly, and he does it for the same reason that he weeps over Jerusalem, right? He loves you. He does not want to see anyone perish. He would go to the very depths of hell himself. He would go through the grave to give you a hope. That's the love of God. Mm. And it's God who's required, in a sense, to do that on behalf of humanity because apart from that, we have no hope. We have no hope. And even that scene on the cross where they're like, oh, is he calling out for help? Is he calling out to Elijah? Like, no, he wasn't. Mm-hmm. He wasn't trying to get out of this. Right. You know, there's that old saying that it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love. Mm-hmm. You know, here you have God on a cross that could ordain all things, who's, who's performed outrageous miracles, who controls storms, you know, and seas. And I mean, he could, he could. He slipped through crowds. Yeah. That right. story's wild. Yeah, he didn't wild. do that on the way to the cross. He could have just got out. But with a word, he does yeah. the miraculous. And he does not escape that fate. He knows what he's getting into. He's so stressed out by it in the Garden of Gethsemane that he's sweating blood about it. He knows what he's facing. And it's mm-hmm. going to be excruciating. And yet he won't walk away from it. Because the will of the Father is to redeem us. Mm-hmm. And Jesus looks at us and says, you're worth it. You're absolutely worth it. And so you just look at the story and how it's it's woven together. One of my favorite things, and these moments are all over the scriptures, is God, you, you just see him weaving together detail after detail after detail that is going to mirror and echo and mimic what he's going to do with his son on the cross in Jerusalem. And you have to ask yourself, why does he do that? And it's like you just see the heart of God. He is absolutely delighted and obsessed in some sense to just be keep telling the story. It's mm-hmm. close to his heart. It's something that brings him great delight, even in the messiness of it all, because of what he wins out of that, which is you. You know, it's this this story is always in God's mind. He's telling it again and again, foreshadowing what he's going to do with the son. You can just you can kind of tell like if you ever meet somebody who's in love, they they can't talk about anything else. It's like on their mind all the time and they want to talk about their their girlfriend or their boyfriend or their fiance. It's like always on the mind to the point where it's like, all right, mo- moving yeah. on, like <laughs> talk about something yeah. else. You see that in the scripture where God, through all of his stories, and you got to remember, God is a sovereign storyteller. He's sovereign over every moment of history. He writes these stories in some sense by his sovereignty into existence. And as he's the author of all history, he just keeps telling the story with Mm. these echoes of Jesus because he's obsessed with that story. He loves that story because it glorifies his son as the ultimate hero And he wins a bride for himself that he sees as infinitely precious to him. And that's you. Wild. So verse 15, it says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Remember when we talked about the unilateral and the bilateral covenants and how God makes one-way promises to Abraham? He doesn't say, hey, if you do this, Abraham, then I'll rescue the world through you. It's all one way. God's saying, I'm going to do this, period. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. So here you have God who's saying, like, I entered in this covenant all by myself. It wasn't dependent upon you. But, like, I see that you've done this. You, you, Your faith has been so real and tremendous and powerful. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your offspring like the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And that's language like in the Old Testament, in ancient cultures, the, the capital of a city was at the gates. It's, it's like, imagine this being the, the, the capital building. It's the center of power. You're going to possess the center of power of all of your enemies. Mm. And in your offspring, 
Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? There's that promise again. That's the hope of Christ, because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And you say, okay, well, wait a minute. Now it's saying that he's doing this because you obeyed my voice. What God is allowing here is he's allowing Abraham to share in the glory of the moment, which is pretty remarkable. Like God's going to bring about the salvation of the world unilaterally. He's already shown that. But now that Abraham has done this, God's like, you know what? Like I'm going to give credit and honor and allow you to share in my glory. Even though all glory belongs to God, he shares it then with his people. And it's like our obedience. We don't obey to be loved, but we're, mm-hmm. we obey God out of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he uses our obedience. And so it's like God doesn't need me to yeah, save. He lets us do it. Yeah, he doesn't need me to save someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, who's going to hear about Jesus from me. Yet he uses me and allows me to, it like condescends almost, to let me share in a story with eternal implications mm-hmm that is of a power that's far beyond me. I mean, I can't control whether the spirit comes in and brings somebody to life and gives them faith and radically transforms them as a person. But I am, in a sense, a conveyance for the spirit to work through. So in a part, he allows us to share in the hero role. Even though we have no power in and of ourselves, Mm. he works through us when we're willing to die to ourselves, which is awesome. And that's essentially what he's saying to Abraham here is I'm doing this. And yet your willingness to be used, I'm going to use that to bless the world. Mm. I'm going to use that to bless the nations. And that's why, you know, if Abraham never has Isaac, we're not singing father Abraham. He's Mm -hmm. a forgotten figure of history, but because he held to that promise, because he was obedient, we know his name. And so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba, which I've never understood. Like, remember, this is the place where Hagar's like fearing death. It's down in the desert. She, God's got to point out a well to her. Like, who wants to live there? But anyway, Abraham goes and lives at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, and we're going to get into some names here. After these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, which is back in the land of Haran. Now, this is setting up um, the family that's going to come. Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Now, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. That's why it's telling us these names, because Abraham's son Isaac is going to marry Rebecca, his cousin, right? That would be his cousin. Sure seems like it. Abraham's, let's see. So it's his second cousin. Better. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba. Geham, Tehash, and Makkah. Those, we don't, I have nothing to say about those people. But it is setting up. Okay, so now that we see that Isaac is surviving, Abraham is entrusting Isaac to the Lord. Here comes the son of promise through whose descendants the salvation of the world is going to come. Now at the end of Genesis chapter 22, you have God setting up the next generation. Here comes Rebekah for Isaac. And it's setting up the next marriage that we're going to see, not in the next chapter. Uh, In the next chapter, we see the death of Sarah, which actually is a really beautiful thing. Um, Not her death, but how Abraham navigates it. It shows you again that he is a person who believes in the resurrection. But next week, we're going to combine not only Sarah's death and burial, but we're going to talk about Isaac, who at the age of 40 gets a bride. So good times. It is good times. And so the next generation comes on and you got to think, you know, we're, we're, I don't know, 1900 BC at this point. And all these generations, you, the line has to hold, there has to be a son from 1900 BC all the way to Jesus in order for this promise to work. So think about the complexities of that prophecy. And yet it does. I feel better about Abraham today. Well, how come? I think I've always read this story that he was just like faking it 
to make it. Okay. But now I think after this, I really believe that he believed, like you said, that he's going to kill Isaac, burn him, and God's going to bring him back to life. Like, I actually believe that he believed that now. I totally do. Well, Hebrews tells us that he does, for one. But when you're reading in the moment, like, take Hebrews out of it. Yeah, no, it's... If you didn't have the spoiler ending where Hebrews tells you he expected resurrection. Like, here you see, because really the story of Abraham, it's like we talked about, is circumstance versus promise. And God's... And that's, I mean, isn't that how we operate still today? Like we look at the circumstance and we get overwhelmed and we forget the promise of God because we can't see how God's going to make a way yeah. again and again and again. And yet I think Abraham had been so tested by fire through his life and he had seen life win again and again and again and again and again to where at this point he's like, all right, I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to doubt it anymore. Like Life is going to win. I don't get what you're up to, God. I don't understand the purpose behind this. But because you're saying it, I'm going to trust because I know your promise is more powerful than in any circumstance. And that's that's where he lands. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think he really did absolutely believe God was going to raise him from the dead. Yeah, wild. This is just the first day I've ever believed that. So <laughs> just kind of taking this lot in live. It's cool. But I mean, the other part of this that's really comforting to me is how many failures he had to go through where he botched and put, you know, circumstance over promise. And there are some big ones. Big ones. Like really like to where, you know, you kind of walk away from previous episodes going like, I'm not sure I like this guy. Right. Where he looks at circumstance and goes, God's promise doesn't have a chance here. Let me help. (laughs) You know, let me let me do my plan. Because the circumstance requires it. And you know what? In the end, God doesn't need our help to make good on his promise. And what happens, and this this is you know just kind of the, the formula of the Christian life, is the more and more and more you begin to trust the promises of God and you realize how precious the promises of God are, the more you're willing to be obedient to, when the circumstances don't make sense of obedience, Mm. you know, because it's, I mean, think of a million different situations where, you know, a godly ethic would require you to take a shortcut and you're looking at circumstances, you're looking at your bills, you're looking at your marriage, you're looking at whatever the case might be. And you're thinking, well, obedience here doesn't make sense because it's going to make me poorer. I'm not going to get the deal. I could lie and get it, you know, ahead or whatever. And God is saying, no, no, no. I've given you a promise. You can trust in that promise. Get your eyes off of the circumstances and obey me. Mm. Trust the promise. And that's where we, that's, I mean, that's a daily struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Like if I, if I really trust the promises of God, I'm way more likely to let go and, you know, stop white knuckling control over every aspect of my life and just obey him because I know he's ultimately working it out for my good. He's going to bring the promise to me if if I just <laughs> let go and stop trying to rig everything. My life will go much smoother. Anything else? No, I think we covered it all. <laughs> this is going to be dangerous. That's how it ends? See, it's it's going to get old. After a while, you're going to be like, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't think, think? so. <laughs> Or it's only you may get, hope I feel that way. It's only going to get worse. <laughs> yeah, I haven't even added my own sounds in. Oh, good lord! So at the end of the day, when you when you read this story, it's it's a reminder that in the Old Testament, salvation came by looking to a promise. Right? They were looking at the promise of the one who was going to come to put an end to death. And so here you see that Abraham genuinely had gotten hold of this promise where he believed that he was serving a God who would send one, who would crush the head of the snake, who would bring about a kingdom where life triumphs over death. And he's looking at that God saying, okay, if God, if you're calling on me to kill my kid, then I'm going to trust that that kingdom, that hope, you're going to infuse that power into my circumstance right now, and you are going to raise my son. And we, on the back end of Jesus, are looking back at the fulfillment of the promise where 
Genuinely, God has brought about a descendant from the line of Abraham who has conquered and crushed the head of the serpent, who has conquered death and has given the power of resurrection through the spirit to his church, not just for that one day when God will raise us up new, but resurrection power that works through us to raise up dying and dead things here in our world. And so when we look at this story and we see in Abraham a faith that believes God can raise the dead, our faith is no different. So it's like, what in your life are you looking at right now that is on the altar that seems dead, it seems destined to wither and perish, whatever it might be, whether it's your marriage or your business or your hopes or your emotions or some past event that's been traumatizing, like we serve a God who can take dead and dying things and breathe life into them. And just as Abraham trusted the Lord with a very, very, very hard thing and said, I trust you enough to be willing to put this on the altar and to watch you raise it from the dead, we need to have that same mindset as the father of our faith to be able to take the really, really difficult things that God is asking us to put on the altar and trust that he can raise them from the dead or maybe he'll intervene and say, stop, stop, you know, Sam, Sam, you know, I don't want you to do that. But at a minimum, we all need to have the heart of faith like Abraham, who is willing to put our most precious things in our life on the altar and trust God with them more than we trust ourselves. That's what we see in Abraham. And it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And the, the results of it, are the salvation and everything else that God has brought about through the obedience of Abraham and the line of Isaac, the son of promise that we have today in Christ. It's a really, really wonderful thing. And so next week, we're going to jump into uh, where Abraham's story starts to wrap up. We're going to see how he mourns over the death of his wife, Sarah. And we're also going to see Abraham, whose attention now stops being on what God is going to do through him and Sarah to bring about the next generation. And his focus starts to be on how is it going to be carried through my son Isaac to the generations after him. And you see, again, really profound, gospel-centric, beautiful stories that are just wonderful. So we will see you next week on the Out of Water Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. water.